Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Nudie Brains Podcast. My name is Emily, and I'm the host. I'm so excited to be interviewing my friend Will today, who actually, so I went to undergrad with him, and he was a year below me, and I got to service his botany TA, um, and it's been really cool to see him thrive. Um, he is currently in the PhD program and actually working at a plant store, so apparently I didn't scare him off plants forever, which is really great. Um, he's actually really involved in kind of the legislative process uh, behind making change for science, so it's kind of a new perspective that is something I don't really know a ton about, and he definitely um, helped me understand a little bit more about how I can make a change in the political realm, even though I'm a scientist. So I hope that you think that this is really interesting. Um, I did leave one of the websites that he mentioned in the description of this podcast, so if you're interested in getting involved, go ahead and follow that link, and it should have all of the information you need. But if not, follow him on Instagram to his um Username is at Will in the Wild with underscores between each. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. If you have any questions for me or want to continue any of the conversations, you can find me at Emily the Marine Biologist on Instagram. I also post a lot of um, like conservation tips, things that you can do to um, lessen your carbon footprint, things like that, and beautiful slug pictures. So definitely follow me if you're not already. And here we go. So thank you so much for being on my podcast today, Will. Thanks for having me. I have to talk about two things before we start. The first is that Will was one of my TA-lings, I called them, the students that were under me um, when I was a TA for botany. So it's really weird to kind of be coming full circle now. And now you're getting a PhD, which is so cool. Um, and then the second thing I need to talk about is the fact that my cat is sitting on my lap. So if anybody hears any strange noises or purring or anything like that, it's definitely my cat. So I apologize in advance. So how are you doing today, Will? I'm doing really good. It's actually exciting to talk to you again because we've come in such a full circle from UTAing and me driving the class and the weird Pepperdine band that we had to get to all of our laboratory <laughs> stuff in the field. Yeah, definitely. That band was always kind of sketchy. So I'm glad we've moved on in the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's jump right into the questions. What is your favorite invertebrate? So I'm going to go with a weird choice, I think. I'm going to say my favorite invertebrate right now is actually a springtail, which is this tiny little former insect, current hexapod that lives in moist soil and eats decaying matter. And I think it's my favorite because I breed them myself to use in terrariums right now. So I have a giant box full of mold, charcoal, and springtails that I am breeding. Things that only scientists do. Also, I like that we made it not even two minutes into this podcast and you've already said the word moist. So thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Really good. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to talk more about your terrariums later because I think that they're really cool. Um, but why did you start studying science in the first place? Uh, so I started studying science because my parents were the parents who sort of took me to zoos, aquariums, museums, everywhere as a kid because I was not easily entertained at home. So it was really easy to get me to go outside instead and run around. I also was really lucky enough to live by one of California's many uh, public works water reservoirs, 
And those were not always built the best, so they leak a lot, creating artificial flood, or not floodlands, but wetlands all over the place. So in the hills right behind my house where I grew up, there was this kind of real, kind of artificial creek, marsh, pond system that had snakes and frogs and lizards and bugs and all these other things where I could go out and sort of explore stuff. So that along with going and doing like night at the zoo, night at the aquarium and all this other stuff as a kid really got me interested in the natural world and got me to study biology when I went to college. That's awesome. And so I don't know a lot about what you do for research currently. I know in undergrad, you worked with Dr. Lee Katz doing some stuff um, in like South and Central America. But do you want to tell us about your research that you're doing now? Yeah, so I have sort of moved on from the behavioral ecology of Southern California amphibians, which is what I studied at Pepperdine. And now I'm looking at more community or system ecology at UC Riverside, focusing on the Santa Ana River and human disturbances and how they affect biotic components of habitat for native species. So in order to do that, I'm looking at things like environmental variables, including water temperature, dissolved oxygen, flow, uh, vegetation cover, and invasive species, and then tying that to the distance to human influence in these natural Southern California riparian systems. That's really cool. Yeah, because I've seen you, you do a lot of field work with that then, right? So I make it look like I do a lot of field work with my <laughs> Instagram, but uh, the reality is I don't get out in the field as often as I would like. I'm still in the process of getting all my access and take and scientific permits at the moment. So in order to make that happen, I need to uh, work with a lot of other agencies. So I'm partnering with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, local water districts, and a local resource conservation district in order to currently get access to the field and work under their permits until I can get my own. Gotcha. Okay. So Instagram's only kind of a lie then. <laughs> yeah, only kind of a lie. I do go out to the Santa Ana River a lot. Just a lot of the time my pictures are from personal trips and hikes and things rather than actual research trips down there. I do find that funny that biologists seem to like even though we study these things all day in the lab, we still want to go out in our free time and like explore these places. I just think that's really cool. Yeah, I think that's a big reason why a lot of us got into biology in the first place, because it's really hard to find a career where you get paid to study and protect the things that you really care about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about your terrariums. I believe you work at some sort of plant shop. Is that what like bond this interest in terrariums? Well, I guess let's start with maybe somebody doesn't know what a terrarium is. So do you want to go into that? And then we can talk about, you know, what you do. Yeah. So terrariums are these little enclosed worlds that people make in jars, um, like actual terrariums, just like sort of glass boxes, uh, sort of anything that can hold soil, water, plants, animals. Um, they're used to keep, uh, reptiles, amphibians, insects as pets a lot of the time. And I actually first started getting into to terrariums when I worked as an undergrad taking care of poison dart frogs, salamanders, and turtles for the lab I worked for. And at that time, I really just sort of cared about what was healthy, safe, and 
easy maintenance wise for the lab animals. But since then, I've really gotten into making my own because it's really relaxing and fun. And I get to sort of show off some creativity, which there isn't always a ton of in the harder sciences, I guess. Yeah. So I currently do a lot of stuff that uh, is for my pet tree frog that got shipped to one of my friends here in California when they ordered air plants from Florida. Uh oh. So that kind of what got me into building personal terrariums is all of a sudden I had this frog that needed a home and I didn't have a great place to put it. So almost a year and a half ago, I built my first personal terrarium rather than a work terrarium. And then since then, I sort of kept growing it and experimented with a few different things. So I have like miniature ones from like a coffee table. I have one two foot tall one that I'm building now that's going to have a waterfall in it. And then I have just a bunch of random things because uh, I didn't quite get summer funding at the start of this year. And I started working at a plant store, as you mentioned. So I got access to all these really cool plants. So I started putting them into my little terrariums. Yeah. So I guess botany didn't scar you too much then. (laughs) Just the know the name and pistol structure of a bunch of different flowers part of it. I still like the plants themselves. I noticed on Instagram then because, like you said, you have um, your favorite invertebrate. You keep those for your terrariums. But also, I've seen you like doing some work with diatoms and stuff. Is that part of your thesis or is that for the terrariums? Yeah, so that's for my thesis. I actually have the funky distinction of, I guess, being a diatom farmer at the moment. So diatoms, if you don't know what they are, are single-celled algae that form a silicate shell or frustule, if you want to be technical. And like they- right? Yeah, it's kind of like this really clear glass and they stick to the bottom of rocks or sand or plants in stream beds and they're a really important food source for a lot of benthic grazers actually and one of these benthic grazers is the Santa Ana sucker which is a endangered species of fish that lives in the Santa Ana River, the San Gabriel River, the Santa Clara River and Big Tahunga Creek in Southern California. So by studying how humans are affecting diatom species uh, community composition and density, I'm able to sort of measure habitat uh, suitability for Santa Ana sucker. That's really cool. And sorry to take this in a dark turn, but you just reminded me that I've heard that if somebody is murdered and drowned in a body of water, the like forensics people can actually identify where they were drowned by the different diatoms the diatom composition like you were talking about because it varies so much from each body of water is that correct yes that is true in certain bodies of water uh in southern california we may not be that special anymore because there's so much man-made uh infrastructure that's been put into our riverbed so we sort of get a homogenous diatom community but there is still some turnover and I know from other work in our lab that there is a very strong seasonal shift between summer and winter. So like they could definitely tell when you were murdered at least. Shoot. (laughs) Humans are ruining murder investigations everywhere. Darn. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to mention about your research? Um, Or do you want to move into kind of what you're doing at UC Riverside as as kind of an outreach project um, and get into climate change a little bit? Yeah, we can talk about the outreach stuff since I think that's pretty fun and my research is still very early on. I guess I do early stages. 
yeah, I guess I do have one more question um, is how long is it going to take you to get a PhD? Do you think? I'm hoping four years. So I'm just finished my first year and moving into year two. So I have my written qualifiers this year. I have oral qualifiers the next year. And I'm hoping if I manage to get funding and all these other things, I can really sort of push through since I have a bunch of really good uh, collaboration sort of set up once there's funding in place. But uh, five years is kind of the maximum I'm looking at trying to do. Obviously, I can't control that, but I will do everything in my power to not, not make it longer than that. Yeah, that's a pretty good timeline. Um, so let's talk about, so you are kind of diving into scientific policy a little bit at UC Riverside. Do you want to talk a little bit about that project? Yeah, so UC Riverside has become a really great place to work in science policy. Uh, to define that a little bit, it's working as a scientist or someone with scientific knowledge to engage with legislators, advocates, lobbyists, and government agencies about how science can and should be used to inform legislation and the working of the government. And in order to do that, I've been partnering with some really cool people on the campus who used to run the California Council on Science Translators in Sacramento to create a curriculum and program for graduate students to learn how to better engage in public policy at UC Riverside. So starting in, I guess, May now, I took over as the uh, executive student chair of the program, and we're working to set up residencies for graduate students in legislative offices, uh, putting on events on campus like a mock uh, legislative hearing, uh, science policy data hackathon, and uh, training workshops for students in different disciplines. That's really interesting. Is that kind of a field that you think you want to go into when you're done, or is that just kind of a side project? Well, uh, currently it's both in the fact that it's a side project that lets me get paid since they have money to pay students to work on these things at the moment. But I really think that if you think about how to make the biggest difference in the world, science policy is a way for a scientist to take their work sort of out of the lab and in a single field where you can make a really deep focused impact and take that knowledge and instead take a lot of other scientists work digest it into something that a legislator or the public cares more about than maybe, I don't know, diatom structure in the Santa Ana River Yeah. and use it to make an impact on how climate change is addressed, how we fund primary research or like the way we try and preserve wild places as a whole in the Southern U.S. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, is there anything else that you want to mention on that project before we kind of go into the climate change thing a little bit more? I mean, we already kind of started talking about it, but I don't want to cut you off because this is something that's really cool. Yeah, actually, I don't know um, who listens all to this, but if you're a graduate student in the UC system at all, or I think the Cal State, there's this really cool competition called STEM Solutions offered through the UC Center Sacramento, where you can propose a law based on your scientific knowledge or research. And based on the best proposals, they'll work with you and a legislative office to turn that into an actual bill to try and make it through the California Assembly or Senate. That is so cool. Well, I'm part of the California state system, so you'll have to send me a link for that website so I can maybe put it in the description of the podcast. Does that sound good? 
yeah, no, that'd be really awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for that information. So let's move into climate change a little bit because I feel like you have a pretty unique, um, maybe opinion on on climate change things because a lot of the research that you've done have been in the Los Angeles area and it's very heavily impacted by people down there. If anybody's ever been stuck in traffic in Los Angeles, uh, they will know. So um, what do you think is the most important thing that anybody needs to know about our planet or climate? Just like one thing, if you had, you know, 10 seconds to tell them. Climate change is a gigantic issue and individual actions are not as important as collective understanding of the problem and working as a species to address the systemic ways we are changing the planet and the climate. Yeah. And you've seen, I mean, because we were just talking about with the diatoms, like you've seen climate change affecting and, and human impact, I should say, affecting diatoms, microscopic things. But I mean, pe people don't see that, that every day. People see, you know, that the ice caps are melting and the polar bears are drowning, things like that. But do you want to elaborate a little bit more on on any differences that you've seen? Because you talked about how, you know, the populations are kind of all becoming one. But but what else are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, you see climate change in a ton of different ways. And I think the way that we're focused currently on temperature actually downplays the global impacts that our species is having. Um, if you follow the United Nations global climate reports, they found microplastics in Arctic snowcaps for the first time recently. Uh, microplastics are ubiquitous in drinking water. Um, water chemistry is changing around the world. So anywhere where, where we release treated wastewater due to the number of medications people are taking, that's actually not currently planned into filtration systems. So all of these aquatic species are kind of becoming sexually ambiguous because of the number of hormones that are pumped into these systems. So climate change itself is the first uh, part of sort of addressing human impact globally. And we really see that in everything from like my diatoms and the way water and temperature is distributed to the way species are getting hit when they try and run across a freeway. And they're all part of this one interconnected issue that people are everywhere. Our impacts go beyond where we physically are located and we consume more than any other species on the planet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I even heard a story the other day that in like some of the deep ocean trenches that they're finding microplastics and bivalves. And yeah. That's just so sad, you know, it's not something. Yeah. It's not just it's not just um, you know, happening where, where there are people around. So that's really sad. And I don't I've actually never really been to the Riverside area, but are you close to the ocean at all or kind of far away? <laughs> We're kind of far away. Um, I think a good joke would be it's uh, 45 minutes without traffic and four hours with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds about right. Um, do you think, because I've always heard that communities that are closer to the ocean are more conscientious of their impact on on the global climate because they see things happening in the ocean. They see plastic washing up on the beach. Um, and, like, when I went to Nebraska a few years ago, they were, like, trying to triple bag my things. They had, they didn't really see the effects of, of plastics on animals and things like that. Would you say that at Riverside people are very conscientious or is there kind of a difference? Uh, I would say there's a 
difference here? I think a lot of it really is sort of the background and where you're coming from financially and how you care about these issues and the way we have to address them to make them relevant to people's lives. Uh, so Riverside actually is a really big transportation hub and it's a warehouse center for like Target, Walmart, Amazon. So it's not the highest income community yet. So how climate change is affecting these people is really in the cost of driving up global goods as gas prices go up as we try to cut fossil fuels. And these differences and the way I think specifically scientists often address climate change is from the advantage of someone who's a little more well off and caring about microplastics and water when you have the financial security to do so is really fantastic. But addressing climate change for lower income or lower socioeconomic status communities often requires sort of taking a step back and looking at the way that we're funding corporations a lot of the time really and how we address that is going to be a driving force in sort of the future of the climate and the planet. Um, also just looking at global consumption and developing nations, current distribution of wealth across the human population yeah, is a huge a issue. Deal. Yeah, yeah, so if you look at like global standard of living, it's obviously not equally distributed, but specifically the US standard of living isn't actually applicable if we wanted to raise everyone to our even current standard and maintain the level of like natural resources, let alone rare earth elements for electronics, solar panels, car batteries that we would need. So I think thinking about even beyond like cutting greenhouse gas emissions, human consumption and a global or equitable global standard of living are questions that we're going to have to address as scientists in the future, especially if we care about having a sustainable or green society. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I went to a seminar a few weeks ago talking about deep ocean mining and possibly getting some of those metals you were talking about for electronics from like hydrothermal vents and and different things like that and I was like oh my gosh yeah let's just destroy more ecosystems with mining great so yeah. yeah definitely something we need to take in mind and I also really liked that you talked about like socioeconomic stuff sorry my cat just touched my keyboard <laughs> <laughs> I also liked that you talked about the you know the socioeconomic status of people and how that can really affect what aspects of of their life they're able to change to help mitigate climate change. Um, so do you have like one easy tip that is really low cost and anybody can do um, to try to help the planet a little bit? Like what's one thing that anybody could do? So I actually have a zero cost tip to help save the planet and that is to call your legislator regularly. So just if you have a phone at all, you can call maybe every Friday and be part of the Fridays for the Future movement started by Greta Thornburg and just make your politicians at the local, state and federal level really aware that you as their constituent care about climate change, you care about how they're addressing it and that you will or won't vote, or the, vote for them based on that issue. And it doesn't require any money, but it just requires some time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And can anybody call into those? Uh, you can call any legislator you want. They only care if you're one of those people who matter for them being reelected, which is 
an unfortunate reality. They'll be very nice to you if you aren't. Um, but the reelectability uh, based on their constituency is what a lot of the specifically staffers are paid to worry about. So calling your own legislatures, uh, legislators is a first priority. And then if you want to just go down the list of the California State Assembly, you can do that and really make a difference by talking to these staffers and making sure that this stays on their radar and it's not a flash in the pan issue that's going to go away in a few years. Yeah, absolutely. And those are that's contact information people can find just online. Yeah. Yeah. So if you Google California State Assembly, then you can actually click on their members page. And from there, you're able to look at every single member of the assembly and where they are represented in the district number. So just Google your hometown's district number, go scroll through the California State Assembly page, California State Senate page, and then you can find those people. And then if you're really wanting to spend more time, go do it for your congressman and uh, federal senator as well. Yeah, and I mean, that probably only takes, you know, maybe 30 minutes, right, to... Yeah, it probably takes 30 minutes. You do it each time you hear an especially horrendous piece of climate news, it's probably what, like, 10 or 11 times a year, so that's like six hours. Yeah, that's not too bad. That's kind of something that anybody can do. So that's awesome. Thank you so much for providing that. And this question is always one that people have different answers for, and some people don't even like to answer it, but what do you have to say to climate change deniers? <sighs> so it really <laughs> depends on what type of climate change denier you're talking to. There's people who just truly don't understand climate change. It's a large concept that is kind of not intuitive when you look at it from an individual level and it requires a really large worldview in some cases. Uh, so to someone who maybe just could use some education on climate change, I would say I would love to sit down and talk to you about why you think climate change isn't real or why we don't need to worry about this problem. And there's lots of reasons why climate change is important even beyond the raising of the planet's temperature. And I think I could find a reason for them to care about global human impacts, even without discussing temperature at all. For someone who knows the science and knows why, but they're like still advocating against climate change action, I would say you know why you're talking this way about this issue, and it's fine for people to do something like this, but you're misleading lots of people and you're negatively impacting the future of everyone who will ever be born on the planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's great advice. Thank you. So is there anything else that you wanted to share um, before we start to wrap up and you give me an obscure fact or pun about invertebrates? Uh, um, I don't think so. I mean, I want to say that Emily is pretty fantastic and I'm really excited to be able to be on this podcast and sort of share about science with her. Thank you so much. <laughs> so what's your, what's your fact or pun? I saw you got excited about that. Yeah. Um, so my obscure fact is that the banana slug, which is the UC Santa Cruz mascot, 
is one of the largest slugs in the entire world. Does that count as an obscure factor? Yeah, I think so. All right. So, yeah, go check it out. Bright yellow. Go banana slugs. You see Santa Cruz. Yeah, banana slugs are amazing. I love seeing them when I'm out hiking in the redwoods. That's awesome. So, Will, if people want to follow you on Instagram, what is your handle? Yeah, it's at Will in the Wild. It has so, underscores between each yeah, one, right? Yeah, a bunch of them. I think if you just type in Will in the Wild, I do still show up. But there is an underscore between each of those words, which is a pain to type in. <laughs> Why did you do that to yourself? No, it's fine. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Will. And I look forward to seeing all of the things that you accomplish in the next, hopefully, three years. Yeah, hopefully three years. <laughs> Thanks. Bye.